from KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Schools in the California counties that are on the state's coronavirus surge watch list will not be able to reopen to classroom instruction this fall until those counties see a minimum of 14 consecutive days of declining coronavirus cases. That's according to guidance released by Governor Newsom on Friday. We all prefer in-classroom instructions for all the obvious reasons, social and emotional foundationally, but only, only if it can be done safely. We'll hear about the guidelines and we'll take your questions about what schools will look like this fall and what role parents will have to play to make distance learning work. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Michael Krasny. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced on Friday that all public and private schools and counties on the state's COVID-19 watch list must operate remotely this fall. We'll discuss how Bay Area districts are planning for remote instruction and what it will take for schools to resume in-person learning safely. And we wanna hear from you. What questions or concerns do you have about remote instruction in your district? If your kids are learning from home, how have you adapted? You can give us a call right now at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. That's again, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And let me tell you now who's joining us for the hour. I want to welcome Vanessa Roncano, education reporter for KQED News. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to have you aboard. Also glad to have Yasko Fakuda, who's practicing pediatrician in San Francisco and chair of the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics. He serves on their national board. Welcome to the program, Dr. Fakuda. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning to you, and we'll also say good morning to Sailaja Suresh, who is Senior Director of Strategic Projects and leader of the COVID-19 Task Force with the Oakland Unified School District. Good morning. Good morning, thanks for having me. Glad to have you and welcome to all of you. And uh, Vanessa, let me begin with you, and let's begin by saying that 99% of students are affected by this throughout California. That's about 5.5 million students, and it means that they can't reopen and get back to face-to-face -face learning, so to speak, unless uh, hospitalization and infection rates are stable. But let's talk about the governor's order first and sort of flesh it out with you. He's talking about high-quality distance learning, and he means including daily live interaction between teachers and students. Yeah, indeed. And I think most people would like to see clearer guidance on what exactly quality distance learning entails. Uh, we know that there has to be daily live synchronous instruction. We know attendance has to be taken. Um, we know that some special supports for English learners and children in special education need to be put in place, but we still really don't have a lot of details. And we do have some details, however, about those schools that uh, are opening in terms of mask requirements and the like. Uh, Districts uh, will have to go through testing if they're opening and so forth, but why so hazy for the uh, majority? We, again, we're talking about 90%. And, and is, the government, uh, is the governor still being criticized for coming in too late on this? You know, the response has been mixed. I think there was a lot of relief from district leaders because people were, were really scrambling and 
trying to figure this out. It was a real patchwork. Um, in some cases, neighboring districts, districts in the same county, um, were coming up with different plans. Um, and so this provides some clarity, but in some corners of the state, we're also hearing from superintendents who are really frustrated, who are saying, you know, some of the state's biggest districts didn't have it together here. And as a result of their incompetence, we're all suffering. Um, so, so it's a mixed reaction from school leaders and from parents, of course. And again, we're talking to Vanessa Roncano, an education reporter, and uh, we asked listeners to send in questions. Here's one for you, Vanessa. Hi, my name is Brianne, and I live in San Francisco, and my question is regarding private and parochial schools. Now that SF Public Schools said they'll start off the year distance learning, are private and parochial schools allowed to open? How does that work? So the governor made clear that this, these rules apply to private schools and public schools. Well, I'm glad we got clarity on that. Let me bring uh, Yasko Fukuda into this, who, again, is practicing pediatrician in San Francisco and chair of the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they have been, uh, Dr. Fukuda, the AAP, very clear that the optimal learning is within the schools, uh, not only in terms of mental and emotional, but nutritional and really just about everything you can think about. So uh, we have to weigh this against the risks and safety, the governor tells us. And on this score, I'd like to know your you, not only your sentiments, but your feelings. Um, yes, thank you. So just, just to back up, the goal um, of the American Academy of Pediatrics, really, um, they are committed um, to promoting the optimal physical, mental, and social health and well-being of infants, children, adolescents, and young adults. Um, the importance of education um, has been well outlined from the benefits, including education, social interactions, the nutritional programs. We certainly know there are many food insecure families, um, keeping the children safe while parents work. The teachers and the schools are really the social eye for the children. Um, and the mental health of children also needs to be supported. At the same time, it is very important to partner with the schools, with the health departments and local communities to ensure that children can return to school safely if it is done in, in person. So I think that collaboration between all of those components in the community is very important. Well, certainly I think most people would agree with you. And uh, the reality is that kids don't get the socializing that they can get, although there are talks about pods and groups who, and this again, if anything, points out the terrible inequities uh, in terms of uh, education, because some can afford to have those pods and bring in private teachers and many others cannot. But with the putting safeguards in place is overwhelming and it's costly and the districts don't have the resources. And above all, we need safety here. So I'm wondering, for example, if for the most part, you have to concede the fact that the governor is making the right decision here or should we be looking at more schools trying to stay open and, and doing whatever they can in terms of distance learning uh, uh, hybridized with that? And certainly it has to be an evidence-based approach where you look at the science at the public health department and their um, statistics in terms of opening safely. But I think you bring up a very important point um, is that we need to provide the adequate resources 
for all aspects um, to be paid attention to, whether it's distance learning or in-school learning, the schools need the resources. I agree with that. And I'd like to talk with you also, if I could, uh, about, well, community transmission and the problems that we have that uh, face us uh, that are essentially behind this decision by Governor Newsom. Uh, I'm looking actually at a question from a listener who says, why aren't teachers considered essential workers, especially given the fact that according to an article in the Washington Post in Finland, they found no evidence of school spread. Finland's infection rate amongst children was similar to Sweden's, even though Sweden never closed its schools. Thank you, Fakuda. Um, yes, I agree. Um, teachers are very essential, especially, excuse me, especially in light of the importance of school and education for children. Um, I think we need to um, teach school safety. Um, there has to be um, a responsibility for everyone um, in their families as well to learn if you're able developmentally to have kids um, wear masks, um, to wash their hands. We say wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, so that kids will understand that. The schools need the resources to be able to do the proper cleaning um, of high touch areas and to implement um, uh, procedures so that they can keep each other safe. A lot of it comes down to um, the community and our families all understanding what is safe and to physically distance, um, to wear masks and to be responsible in public. I was struck uh, over the weekend reading about a case, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, actually in Texas, in Nueces County in Texas, which is near Corpus Christi, or actually includes Corpus Christi. After they had a flattening curve, they noted that there were 85 babies under the year of one that got COVID-19. And the concern here is that send school kids back to school, suddenly they will come home and transmit to infants uh, or siblings and that sort of thing. But this idea of transmission, uh, particularly transmission in children, and now in babies with that case in Texas coming into the headlines, uh, I'd like your thoughts. Um, I think we don't know all of the science yet in terms of why. We know that there are those that are higher risk in terms of getting sicker. Um, infants under um, that are younger are among that group, certainly. Um, but the evidence is showing that a majority of transmission in children that are younger um, seems to be lower. Um, and I think that is still um, a subject of investigation um, to understand why. It would be wonderful to know why. I think that there are some ideas um, but those are yet to be proved. Um, we know that as you're older, that the transmission rate is higher. Um, and uh, school is a community. So the transmission, not only child to child, but as you say, taking it home to those that are higher risk in the household, um, from the teachers and their families, um, to the grandparents, to the extended families. Um, and that is why it's important to teach um, hygiene and being safe in school. Yasko Fukuda, again, practicing pediatrician in San Francisco and chair of the California Academy of Pediatrics. And Sailaja Suresh is senior director of strategic projects and leader of the COVID-19 task force at the Oakland Unified School District. And there's been a, a lot of concern, I know, uh, over in Oakland about moving to new strategies here and particularly addressing highest needs first. Could you flesh that out for us? Sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I want to acknowledge first how 
frustrating a situation this is for, for families as, as well as educators who ultimately want to do right by kids, right, and want to provide an optimal learning situation. And we don't have an optimal learning situation right now, um, given the context of the global pandemic. Um, and one of the things that I think has been working thus far in Oakland is we got started with our planning relatively early um, before the last school year even ended. So in May, we convened this action team of about 100 individuals who were parents and teachers, um, union representatives who were nominated by their, uh, by their unions, um, principal central leaders to come together to say, how can we scenario plan for the fall? Because we don't know what's gonna happen with the virus and transmission in our community. Um, we don't have guidance from the state. We don't have guidance from the county, um, but we need to get started planning. Um, and so came together to begin planning operationally of what do we need to do around PPE? What do we need to do around our facilities, around technology? Uh, but also what do we need to do instructionally? Um, should we be in distance learning next year um, or should we be in some form of blended learning next year? Um, and so I think that those have put us in good stead where from, you know, from that time in May, we have uh, recommendations around um, sort of how to support um, our various high needs groups and how to bring them back sooner, safely. We've been working with a team of physicians from UCSF, um, one of whom is an OUSD teacher, another who is a, a USD parent herself, um, to make sure that we were also responding to the latest science, um, which of course has been evolving and we've been learning more over the course of the entire summer. Um, and so I think just in terms of the latest information from the governor, um, really appreciate there being some consistence, um, consistency around the expectation statewide, um, as well as countywide, because a lot of districts were, um, you know, making decisions around uh, public health standards that really need to be made um, in concert with the, the county and with the state so that we're not doing something different in Alameda County that we would be doing in San Francisco or San Mateo or somewhere else. But you're looking at, as I indicated, highest needs first. You're talking mm -hmm. about those who need counseling and for example, foster and unsheltered yeah. youth. And I assume also trying to accommodate special needs students. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of those um, sort of addressing of high needs first came from the community meetings that we held with parents, with educators, um, and really looking at this, you know, we had to pivot into distance learning very quickly in the spring, um, and who did that not serve, right, and, and how do we bring those students back who really need in-person interventions um, sooner rather than later, and what are the safety elements that have to be in place um, for us to be able to do that effectively, um, and so that's really where um, identifying these specific populations came up, um, but also acknowledging in a place like Oakland, which is really big and really complex, um, that that looks really different um, school to school. And, um, and that there are a number of factors as well that are um, outside of our scope of responsibility that are gonna impact our ability to get those high needs students back first. And I think transportation is an example of that. Um, AC Transit is running um, buses at about 25% capacity right now. So even if we wanted to open a school um, like Oakland International High School, which is the school that I helped start years ago um, and which serves entirely um, immigrant newly arrived students um, we wouldn't be able to bring all of those students back at once because they are heavily reliant on AC transit. So it's acknowledging that there are a number of factors um, that are outside of our control. And um, given those constraints, who are the students we're able to bring back and how many, um, and how do we do it safely? Well, let me ask you a very key question in light of the context that you just provided for us. And that is uh, certainly in Oakland and throughout the state, 
there are literally hundreds of thousands of students who don't have reliable internet connectivity. Yeah, yeah, and and that's something that um, a local partner of ours, the Tech Exchange, has been a really, really critical player in this. Where um, for more than a decade now, they've been dedicated to closing the digital divide in Oakland and really stepped up in this process to provide hotspots and internet access to our families. We're still not there. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, um, but in collaboration with the mayor's office, launched a program called Oakland Undivided, where we were able to fundraise to buy access to um, hotspots as well as devices so that we can get to a place where every child who needs a device, where every child who needs internet access um, will be able to get that support through this program. And, um, and we're getting the devices now, we're logging them, we're um, creating the inventory so that we can begin deploying them when school starts. Let me read a comment and get your response to this from a listener named Kristen who writes, I'm a I'm writing as a concerned San Jose resident and parent. I believe schools must reopen for in-person learning for children with special needs. My husband and I work full-time. We have no family here and no help. We have two young elementary age children and one with a severe speech disorder. My five-year-old is unintelligible to others. I can't rely on Zoom or Google Meet as a substitute for in-person learning for him. As a mother, I have cried myself to sleep since the governor's announcement on Friday. There is a growing group of parents with special needs children in the Bay Area that are filing a class action lawsuit because we feel distance learning discriminates against children with special needs. Get a response from you on that, Sailaja? Yeah, um, I mean, I just, I, I know that there are a lot of parents in her situation and I, just, I want to acknowledge how, how hard that is. Um, and it is one of the things that we have been hearing from the very beginning um, from a lot of parents who are advocating for a return to in-person instruction for their children who, um, who do have special needs and for whom distance learning just doesn't work, um, which is why they are amongst the population that we're recommending in Oakland um, come back first. And where we are right now and where most districts are right now is we're in negotiations, right? And um, so it is the context of what's happening in the county and what's happening in the state, but it's also what's happening with our local um, labor partners in deciding when and how these um, phases of blended instruction can happen. Um, and I know that uh, addressing special needs is, is a major priority, not just for parents, but also for educators, right? They, they want to be doing right by their students and they want to be providing the best support they possibly can to the children that are in their care. And I know there are many of you who have questions, so I want to go right to your calls and again remind you that you can join us by phone at 866-733-6786. Let's bring Brian on, who is a dad. Brian, welcome. You're on the air. Hi. I've got uh, two kids in elementary school, and in Santa Rosa, our, our schools are set up for distance learning. But um, I've also got a sister who works. She's divorced. She has to trade her kid back and forth, and she's in the same position that many of the special needs parents are in as well with trying to figure out what are they going to do? What's the plan of attack? And I, I feel it's kind of naive maybe to be asking this, but why haven't we considered the solution of just shutting everything down, canceling debt and waiting until there are 14 days of no new cases? Vanessa, are you hearing any talk along those lines? Vanessa Roncano? Well, I, I'm not quite sure what the caller means. I mean, the guidance calls for schools to remain closed as long as they're on this monitoring list and they've got to get off for two straight weeks before they can reopen. That's just well, so, essentially the imperative, Brian. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, that's that's the plan of attack that we're employing right now. Meanwhile, 
parts of the world are still working. People are being employed. People are going out. Restaurants are open for, you know, open air spaces. You've got take home deliveries still available. But I, I feel like we're we're planning for a solution where we're working towards everything operating and still partially closed. I just, it's beyond my mind why we can't just shut it all down and wait until no new cases arise. And then we can, you know, go back to this. I feel like we didn't shut it down properly. To begin yeah, with. well, uh, <laughs> let me go back to you, Sarlaja Suresh. Why not just wait 14 days, shut everything down for 14 days? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to echo what Vanessa said earlier, which was that the, the governor's order um, was, was, I think, some consistency that we had been looking for um, around, like, let's make sure that we have a standard across the board. I mean, I think certainly a, a universal shutdown for 14 days could have a real impact on um, transmission rates that could potentially allow schools to reopen safely. But I think that that's a decision for a public health department, right, of, of weighing the pros and cons of opening different parts of the economy before others. And it, as like an educator, right, our priority is getting kids back into school. And at the level of the state and at the level of the county, it's making the trade-offs between different parts of um, society. And, you know, and obviously we made our reopening plan um, according to certain phases, if that didn't work out the way it was intended, then like what is the way that back, right? What is the way to um, re-examine what the opening plan is going forward? And, you know, appreciating what the governor said that if education is a priority, how do we put that at the forefront? And wanting to make sure that there is an open line of communication and collaboration between districts and between the state and county public health departments that are making these decisions because we want to get back to school. We want to see our kids. We want to take care of them. And we want to make sure that we're doing it safely and are following the guidance of the experts. Understood. And again, Sylaja Suresh is Senior Director of Strategic Projects and leader of the COVID-19 Task Force with the Oakland Unified School Districts. Let me go, if I could, uh, back to you, Dr. Fukuda. This is William who wants to know, my child goes to an extremely small private school here in San Francisco. The risk is minimal, and let's face it, the looming second wave may very well come in the form of mental health, which is my chief concern as a father. Kids need kids. Um, I agree. Kids do need to be uh, together for various reasons that we've talked about. Um, but I think that um, what, it, what we're looking at is the general public health of our community also um, in conjunction with the community of the schools. Um, uh, and uh, that is why local he health uh, departments and jurisdictions need to look at what's happening in their area. I'm sorry, there's... Well, our music's coming up. It means we're just going to a break, but we'll come back and we'll take more of your calls and comments and again, if you'd like to join us, you can do that by calling us at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook or at KQED Forum or email. Any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. And after the break, uh, well, we're going to hear from a listener who has some tips for us. We're also going to hear from uh, someone who's working out standards for distance learning. Stay tuned. That's all up ahead. Sarah Lewis will be joining us. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about uh, the fact that public schools will be doing remote learning for the most part, about 90% of the students. That's 33 of the 58 counties. And uh, 
here in the Bay Area, the only one I believe that is not going to be the remote learning is San Mateo. We're talking with Vanessa Roncano, education reporter for KQED News, and Yasko Fakuda, who is a practicing pediatrician here in San Francisco and chairs the California Academy of Pediatrics, and Sailaja Suresh, who is senior director of strategic projects and leads the COVID-19 task force for the Oakland Unified School District. And if you have questions about the state's remote instruction order or if your kids are learning at home and you want to share some stories about what's worked well, or not so well, we want to hear from you. And you can join us again by phone at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you have to forum at kqed.org. And I mentioned that we have some tips from a listener named Deborah. Deborah from Oakland, good morning. Join us. Hi, good morning. Um, I've taught for the district uh, for most of the last 30 years. I actually do know Salajo. I used to teach at Oakland International. Hello. But anyway, um, a few things to consider in um, rethinking what's going on. Uh, number one, I taught independent study for about 10 years. I actually saw the kids only once a week. Um, there are ways to structure um, their coursework that they could do it partly at home. I realize that doesn't serve every single student, but might work to some degree. It's really almost impossible to do everything on Zoom. I will say I was also the distance learning coordinator for a while, and I did all my trainings for the teachers in person, actually, uh, maybe ironically, but uh, we need to get every teacher in the school needs to be using the same platform. Maybe it's Google Classroom, maybe it's something else, but so students can move more seamlessly from one, you know, teacher or one class to the next. A um, couple of other things. Um, we might want to look at a homeschooling model. A lot of homes, people who are not actually involved in the district, they may get together where one parent uh, kind of takes the responsibility for five or six kids um, during the week each day. It's not perfect. I realize, again, none of these will serve every single student. But I think we need to start to think outside uh, the kind of uh, school box we've been in. Um, I will say as someone who's been in the education game for more than 30 years, we need comprehensive school reform. And I think this is maybe you know, the, the door to open that. And I really want to move toward a more inclusive model, maybe a little radical for these times, but something like Summerhill, where students have a lot more involvement in making decisions. And uh, that's all I wanted to say. Well, I'm glad you had your say, and I thank you. I haven't heard about Summerhill since, uh, well, a long time. A.S. Neal, for those of you interested in reading that book, is the author. Let me go uh, now to Sarah Lillis, who's executive director of the nonprofit Teach Plus and who is joining us as well. And Sarah, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, the state has minimum standards for distance learning, at least uh, in many people's minds, especially many parents' minds. They don't go far enough. So I'd like to talk uh, with you about how parents can demand not only higher quality instruction for their kids, but also how teachers can be worked with to not only make distance learning work better, but to make it work. Yes, thank you, Michael. I, uh, this, as we all saw in the spring, uh, we were in the midst of crisis schooling. And I know that's why a lot of discomfort for educators and for, for parents and for students right now is that we're gonna continue with that, that mindset of crisis schooling. Fortunately, our state leaders uh, put into the most recent state budget an expectation that every uh, school district puts out a learning continuity and attendance plan. So it's really, they're trying to help support districts in working with their local stakeholders, with their educators and their families to identify how they're going to address 
not only the social and emotional needs of their students, but also how they're gonna address the incredible gaps in instruction and learning that, that many students receive and the inequity. And so uh, our state right now, our state department is working on developing a template for that plan that should be released by August 1st. And then there's an expectation. Can you excuse me, give us a little preview of what's in that template? Well, the, uh, your guess is as good as, good as mine. No, but I'm just, there is a, there's a draft out there. And right now it, it, it outlines key questions that LEAs need to answer about LEAs, meaning local education agencies. I apologize for my tendency for acronyms, but about how they are going to address learning loss um, and sort of what are, what are the, their plans for reaching students, um, addressing issues of digital divide, the key barriers that we've seen in the spring uh, to serving students. It still remains to be seen. They're working out, they had, uh, were gathering feedback over the last two weeks, and so they're refining that template. It's not going to be the robust plan that uh, many parents and educators are used to. Um, normally, our, our districts put out a low, uh, an LCAP, we call it a local control and accountability plan. This is not that. This is meant to be a leaner, uh, tighter plan, really focusing on how do we address the, the moment we're in, the crisis we're in, and the needs of students. Um, nevertheless, it is an opportunity for uh, some stakeholder engagement. Our hope, um, Teach Plus is part of a coalition of community groups from around the state, from parents and student groups who are really pushing for clearer guidance for what that engagement looks like. Because again, you know, there are a lot of unanswered questions and this is new for most of us. I, 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 and so we hope that there's a structure put in place that all LEAs can follow that allow for ongoing input, ongoing meaningful engagement from stakeholders, from educators and families and students. Well, Sarah, here's a question uh, that I think I'd like you to address. This is from a listener named Brandon who says, I'm most interested to know what kind of real instruction is being prepared and how teachers will be trained. That is, I think that's the $10 million question, Brandon. I think because this is not, you know, folks asked aren't, aren't teachers essential workers and they are. And this is the work they're going to be doing. They're gonna be working incredibly hard to figure out how to teach in a way that most of them have never taught before. And so it's going to require a lot of support from, from their district leaders to help train them and not only using these new tools, these new online tools, but also thinking differently about how you reach students, how you engage with students. Um, and I think they really need to be job embedded professional learning because again, this is, going, this is an ever evolving uh, situation. And so I think our hope is that uh, district leaders and school leaders really rely on the educators themselves to identify the questions they need answered in order to reach their students. And once again, um, Sarah Lillis is executive director of the nonprofit Teach Plus and Rob is our next caller. Rob, join us. You're on the air on forum. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Um, my wife is a PE teacher in San Francisco and was wondering what's going to happen with PE since that's a necessity, uh, you know, part of the curriculum. And there hasn't really been much talk about how you do that over a Zoom situation. Is there going to be any type of, you know, inclusion in the physical education for elementary school kids? Side logic, can I go to you on that? 
Sure. Um, so we had the good fortune of having a PE teacher as part of our planning team back in May who was coming up with recommendations for what does it look like in distance learning based on his experience with his own students in the spring. Um, and what would it look like, of course, in, in the, the blended learning context. And um, there has been, I think, some good recommendations coming out of consortiums of PE teachers around the state of how to do it in um, how to do physical education in distance learning. And I will say in AB 77, which is really kind of our North Star at this point of what school is supposed to look like this next year, um, it you know keeps PE as a, a core piece of the curriculum where it is required, um, but it has removed um, the minimum daily instructional minutes required um, for PE, which is a real significant shift. And um, you know what's, what's going to end up happening really over the next few weeks is schools are going to have to design their master schedules, their teaching assignments, um, and how they are distributing staff time for students um, going forward. And you know that's typically work that happens in the spring. It happens February, March, April. And um, it happens because we have clear guidance from the state that typically doesn't change from year to year. Um, this year, AB 77 didn't come out until the end of June, um, at which point most principals, most teachers, most counselors are not on duty. Um, and so the re-envisioning and the reassigning of master schedules and content time isn't going to happen until a lot of these folks come back on duty. Um, and we've got MOUs in place to, to govern um, how those class schedules are going to break out on a site-by-site -site level. So um, all that to say is that if PE is still a required component of um, education for a specific grade level, then we have to do that. Um, but the minimum instructional minutes is not um, a standard which the state is going to hold us to at this point in time. There's a related question, if I may, uh, Sylaja, and this is from a listener named Tracy who says, I have two kids at Oakland Technical High School. Why aren't we hearing anything about outdoor classrooms? We have good weather, big outdoor spaces. Why couldn't we set up classrooms and canopies and tents and outdoor spaces that could spread out the kids and allow smaller groups indoors as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, and we actually have an amazing outdoor learning team. Um, it's very small um, in the district who um, have historically worked with a lot of our gardening programs um, where we already begun ordering things like canopies um, with the hope that we will be able to resume some form of in-person education, whether that's a hybrid of inside classrooms or in outdoor spaces. Um, but again, kind of where we are right now is, is in negotiations. And so um, that has to be finalized before we're bringing children or bringing staff back in any form, whether that means inside or outside. Um, but it is a sort of eventuality that we are trying to prepare for. And we also need to keep in mind that fire season is coming. Um, and so outdoor education for the duration of the fall or even the duration of the year is, isn't actually the, the only plan. That's the only viable plan going forward. Um, we also have to figure out how to use um, our indoor spaces as effectively and as safely as possible. And I want to bring another caller on. That's you, Teresa. Join us. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I'm a parent in San Francisco that has three school-aged uh, children, and I'm an essential worker. So when I go to work, I can't just go to a computer inside the house. I have to leave the home. So my question is, uh, what is the support for families where parents can't stay home and do distance learning? It's just a disaster. My youngest is a preschooler. Um, and I can't leave her in front of a computer while I leave the house. And right now my kids are at camp and they are the happiest they have ever been. I feel so happy that they're there with other kids and it's safe. But when fall comes, I don't know what we're going to do because um, I can't stay home when they're distance learning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. Could you help here, Sarah Lillis? 
I wish I could. Um, I think that this is, these are, again, as Salaja mentioned, these are the, the questions that districts are wrestling with because I think you're not alone in the struggle. And I, I, and I know uh, right now, you know, with so many questions to be answered, um, I think what was helpful with the, with the governor's uh, order was that it allowed districts to focus for the, at the immediate question is how do we do distance, distance learning well. And one piece of that is how do you support families that don't have, that are not in a position to help support their students at home. And so that is a question that that I know that all district leaders are, are wrestling with right now. And I wish I had a better answer for you. Now, let me uh, go back, if I may, to you, Vanessa Roncano, because I'm interested in just finding out what we know at this point about uh, daycare centers, because um, my understanding is they're, they're going to be allowed to stay open, but they need to uh, investigate any outbreak and they have to implement all kinds of measures, uh, new guidance uh, for training their staff and families, uh, particularly on hygiene and face cover-ups and the like. Uh, this plays into the whole picture of what parents are going to be able to do in terms of staying home and so forth. Can you shed some light on this for us in terms of where the daycare centers are? I can't speak to the daycare guidelines. Um, certainly this is a huge concern from parents, something I've heard raised a lot. And in some cases I've heard that schools are considering making facilities available for childcare. So I'd love to hear from Salija what Oakland is thinking about that. And another interesting idea that I'll put out there is that parents um, in different parts of the state are considering this idea of creating sort of micropods or parenting pods, they're calling them, where a small group of kids would get together and families would pool resources to hire a tutor or a teacher to help support them through distance learning. And that would give parents, you know, a, a bit of a break, at least some days off during the week. Um, but I'd love to hear what Oakland is thinking. In yeah, terms I mentioned of this earlier. Uh, it, it would, if anything, probably exacerbate the uh, education gap, unfortunately. But let's hear from you on this, Elijah Suresh working with the mayor's office as well as um, the local child care agencies to collect a list of resources for parents. Um, and we began doing this uh, back in early July when we made the announcement to go distance learning ourselves before the governor made his announcement, knowing that this was a huge need for our families and wanting to um, provide child care, particularly for essential workers who have to leave the home. Um, and so we're going to be making that available on our Family Central um, website where we're finalizing the places that are available, the hours that they're available, for whom they're available, um, so that uh, families do have the latest information about that. And let me bring another caller on. Susan, that's you. Thank you for waiting. You're on the air. Hello. Um, I am a teacher, uh, actually in Castro Valley, although I live in Oakland. And I'm wondering about what the governor said regarding face-to-face -face instruction. Yes, uh, teachers love their students, and we would love to be in the classroom. However, um, many teachers have had issues with being face-to-face -face online, um, especially in middle or high school where students take pictures of uh, teachers' faces, unfortunately. Um, so what does that mean, face-to-face, -face, especially since ed code requires the teacher's approval? Well, I thank, thank you, you for that call. And I'm going to go back to you, Vanessa Roncano. I actually want to kick this to Sarah because, I, I mean, I think this is, again, where 
people are looking for more guidance and where districts individually are going to be developing detailed plans. Um, but what can you say, Sarah? Yeah, I think the, the budget bill that outlined the, the requirement for daily live interaction is pretty vague and what that looks like. Um, and I think there are a lot of ways that, that, um, that could happen. It could be a phone call. It could be a text. It, 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 it needs it just the way it's, the way it's defined in the, in the budget bill is pretty broad. Um, our partners, our coalition partners are working with teach plus to, to get better clarity about what that is. I think that the challenge becomes, we know it's difficult. We know there are a lot of barriers. Um, nevertheless, without that, that, expectation that every student is going to have an interaction with uh, someone at their school site. Um, we'll see, we, will, we are worried that we will see what we saw in the spring, which was students lost, students for whom we had no interaction for months at a time. And we know that the students who are impacted by that the most are our most vulnerable students, those who've been underserved historically by our school system. So our English learners, our students with disabilities, our low-income students. And so without the state sending that clear signal, um, we fear that that will continue uh, through the school year. And so we hope we don't have greater clarity on what, what that means, live interact, daily live interaction, but we hope that more uh, clarity is coming from the state soon. As we're talking about the state and budgets, uh, Sarah, I'm inclined to ask you, the fact is that the state budget is now about $5.3 billion linked to the pandemic. Most of that is tied to federal relief, and there's a, uh, well, the relief package from the spring. Uh, is that going to be enough in the long haul here? Do you have a sense of, uh, I mean, the, no. the I would assume <laughs> I mean, no. I, th yeah. I think the answer is no. I think uh, for those... The U.S. Senate is back in session today, and they have a have a package in front of them that they're debating, and so uh, we hope that there's more relief coming soon. Our state budget relies on it, relies on significantly more relief to come soon, and even with that, um, the the added supports that that students and educators need um, are are underfunded in our current budget, and so we we will need significantly more relief from the federal government to actually meet the needs of our students and, and teachers. I assumed, right and I want to read a comment from a listener named Sydney who writes, I'm a first grade teacher spending most of my vacation days trying to train myself on various tech to improve my distance learning. I'm using webinars and YouTube. Districts need the money to bring back teachers and give robust training. It shouldn't be individual teachers trying to cobble something together. I feel so much pressure and there doesn't seem to be enough time to learn all I need. Very stressful. Here's Joseph joining us from Portland, Oregon. Joseph, you're on the air. Good morning. Oh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, kind of referring back to the essential worker who um, is concerned about having to go to work and taking care of retirement. Um, my my point is is that um, we've got a second grader, and we're up here in Portland, and the online school was a disaster. Um, the teacher had maybe one or two conference calls a week. They're about 15 minutes, two or three emails a week. And that was it. And so I guess where I stand on this is I want everybody to be safe. I really do, but there's gotta be some level of risk. And there are people who are essential workers. I have to go work in the public sometimes. And couldn't we do something with high school students? You know, they can wear a mask, right? I would assume seven and eighth graders can wear a mask. I get K through six, that might be impossible, but there's gotta be some level of give from the teachers 
and level of risk they're willing to take in order to keep this thing moving. Um, I'm not, I'm not pro Trump. I'm not saying, you know, open the economy completely, but we just can't keep it shut down. Thanks. Joseph, thank you for that. Uh, I'm going to let that comment stand, but I'd be curious to know, Dr. Fukuda, what your response is to Joseph's call. Um, I do, um, uh, do want to comment about the um, risk of transmission. We know that for some reason, younger kids are not um, as higher risk, um, although we worry about it's not zero. Um, it can still be spread to other people. Um, I think that um, there are various guidance that has been issued by the American Academy of Pediatric that's age-based. Um, and so for K through five, there may be other um, remedies um, for the older children to teach them hygiene, to mask ideas about one-way hallways, um, social distancing activities outside as much as possible. Um, and that the younger children K um, through five, that there may be other um, ways to mitigate, um, putting them in pods and cohorts, trying to do things outside. Um, but I do think that the community as a whole also needs to listen to the local health jurisdiction in terms of what is safe um, for children to even be in school. Um, but once we get there, I think there will be different ways that we can handle different age groups. And again, Yasko Fukuda is practicing pediatrician in San Francisco and chair of the California Academy of Pediatrics. And here's Lee, who's a mom joining us. Lee, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. Well, I'm the parent of a rising first grader, and his public school will require students and parents to be online from the hours of 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., but those hours don't work for me. So my plan is to homeschool him um, so that we can do homework when I'm able to. And my comment for the educators is that I'd appreciate some curriculum support for homeschooling from the public schools. Well, presumably that support's going to come, Silaya Sergers. Yeah, that's definitely something that we're hearing from a lot of parents as well of how we can support them in this transition. Um, you know, a few things that we're looking at is one, starting professional development a little bit earlier with teachers of um, how to support families who are in different places with um, their ability to support distance learning, um, but also how to use some of the other resources that are available in our community, um, like the public access television station, um, like the, the website that we've created for families um, so that we can provide more resources and more guidance to parents parents. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of parents in our community who realize, you know, I, I, we're going to be in distance learning. I am now part of my students' educational plan. Um, I am not a teacher by training. Please help me figure out how to do this well. Um, and, you know, I think uh, several of the um, panelists today have talked about the importance of collaboration. And I think that this is just a testament to that, that, you know, we're not collaborating in the same ways that we have historically, um, that it will require a much tighter collaboration around the public health aspects, but also around the curricular aspects. Um, and that is new um, and it's a new expectation for everyone. And um, I think we'll require districts to really think about what are the school site structures um, to facilitate that collaboration as well as the district-wide structures. And our thanks to Lee for her question. Right to another caller. Jason, that's you. Good morning. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, my wife and I are parents of a rising first grader in SF Public, and we are both essential workers trying to figure this out like everybody. My question is, 
if we have our son in some kind of private situation or pod until in person is uh, back up and running, is there a chance he will lose his spot in his current um, San Francisco public school because of attendance requirements, for instance? Yeah. Vanessa, can you help here? Vanessa Roncano? I wish I could. Um, I don't think I have a good answer. I mean, it seems hard to imagine that your child would lose his spot, but uh, Silaja, do you have any insight from Oakland on this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's another one of these places where it would be really helpful to have statewide guidance so that districts are not making decisions on their own of it'll work this way in Oakland, it'll work that way in Los Angeles. I think that's just not fair to parents. Um, good luck to you and thank you for the call, Jason. I hope things work out for you. Um, I hope they keep a spot for you. Here's Lori who writes, I'm frustrated as a parent of an incoming kindergartner. I appreciate that my district does not know a clear plan yet. However, with a month out from the projected first day, don't they still have an obligation to somehow welcome new incoming families to the school and district community? How would your guests recommend doing so in a way that we can start to feel connected to other community members and families, albeit not knowing what the school day will look like? Sarah Lillis, let me go to you. As a parent of a rising kindergartner myself, I share that, uh, that concern. And I think what we're seeing again um, is now, I think now that the signal is clear that we're starting with distance learning, I think uh, I, my hope is that districts will be able to, um, to, to garner their resources to really focus on what, what community looks like in a virtual setting. Um, and it doesn't just mean Zoom as much as I love Zoom, but I think that that's what, that is right now what districts are, are wrestling with. And so I've seen already a lot of parent, parent forums to begin to have the conversation about what does this look like? How are we in this together? There's a real need for two-way communication the way that, that, that we haven't had before. And recognizing that uh, we have families that don't, for whom English is not their first language, right? And so how do we build community for all families um, not just our new, our kindergartners, um, but, but all families. And so I think that that is really, it's helpful now for districts to say, this is how we have to focus, how we build community in a virtual setting. And so hope to see more clarity soon. And let me bring another caller on. Tiasha, join us. You're on forum. Hello there. I am a high school teacher for San Francisco Unified. I have 136 students. And I spent night and day trying to get ready by reviewing and attending all kinds of webinars on how to do online distance teaching. And I was in a queue during the IT's lunch hours with my stack of questions as how to do it right. And there were so many students who were very lackadaisical. I contacted all their parents. A lot of parents did not supply the correct information as to how to contact them. I asked the other classmates to please text their friends. I was on the phone. I was on the computer tracking every student down. Tiasha, we will let your comments stand. And I thank you for that call. And I thank our guests. Uh, much appreciative of your being with us, Yasko Fakuda and Salija Suresh, and uh, also Sarah Lillis, and of course our own Vanessa Roncano. And you, our listeners, thanks to all of you for being a part of the program, all of you who called in and wrote in, and stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. That's up ahead for all of us here at KQED. I'm Michael Krasny.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.